All right, we'll go ahead and get started here. Um, we're going to cover the beginning part of, uh, of redemption um, and how God begins the work of redemption, uh, which doesn't take us first to the Gospels, but it actually takes us first uh, right there to Genesis 3.15, and, um, and we see how God's plan of redemption is carried out all the way from his first promise, uh, what's known as the first gospel um, in Genesis 3.15 to um, all the way uh, leading us up to Christ. And, and today we're also going to cover what's known uh, as the intertestamental period. Uh, it's a period of time in between uh, the closing of the Old Testament uh, canon uh, and the beginning of, uh, of the life of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament. And so uh, it's also kind of known as a period of 400 years of silence. There's no prophets. <clears throat> There's no um, word from God during that time um, as Israel uh, is under, uh, even back in the land, but still not quite fully free uh, from under the, uh, the thumb of foreign powers. And ultimately, Rome uh, will come to be that power uh, that takes us into the time of Christ. So um, none of that content is covered, so to speak. Uh, in the in the Bible, but the New Testament uh, is really understood against the backdrop of the intertestamental period. Uh, it's all it explains why, for example, uh, so many in Israel were looking for a military leader uh, who would defeat the Romans, and uh, and we'll see some of the precursors to that idea in Judas Maccabeus uh, during uh, the intertestamental period. So excited for us to to dig in. I brought my uh, whiteboard here. Because um, I like to, um, we're gonna trace out some things that hopefully uh, you'll find you'll find helpful. So uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you so much uh, for uh, today. Uh, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, we thank you for for your grace in Christ. Um, Lord, as I step back and just look at the uh, plan of redemption unfolding in Scripture, I'm just reminded. God, that you are the God who makes promises and keeps promises. You are sovereign over all things, and you're working out your plan, uh, God, to, to bring about uh, glory to your name uh, and to, to bring about our salvation. Uh, thank you for uh, how, <clears throat> from the beginning in the midst of judgment, you held out the hope uh, of, of redemption. And uh, Lord, I pray today you would just encourage us as we think back and look back uh, at the work you accomplished um, and, and that you started uh, even in the Old Testament uh, as we anticipated the coming of Christ uh, that takes us all the way uh, to the work of Christ that he did on the cross and in the resurrection. And even as we consider these things today, Lord, in light of uh, approaching Easter, um, God, I just pray you would give us a greater um, depth of understanding and appreciation uh, of what Christ came to do, uh, of the redemption he completed, um, that we would understand um, even uh, in a greater way, God, uh, what he accomplished for us. We love you, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so we said that we're talking about the storyline of Scripture, and so kind of have four move, move, like major parts, so to speak, to the storyline. And the last two weeks, we've covered those. So part one would be what? Creation. Creation. out of creation what, where is creation what, where is that story told in the Bible Genesis 
Genesis, Genesis, particularly chapter one and two, right? Hmm. After creation comes the fall. <clears throat> and it is found in Genesis three, right? Kind of already said this, so if you're listening, you heard me say this. What comes after the fall in terms of the storyline of Scripture? Say that again. Winter? Winter, yes. Um, <laughs> it rhymes. It doesn't rhyme with the word, but uh, similar. Redemption. Now, the question is, where is the story of redemption told in the Bible? Beginning where and going to what? It's a trick question. Say that again. It's like a trick question, I feel like. No, I'm, smiling I'm, I'm still laughing about it. I'm still laughing about winter. As the, the rest of the Bible. Uh, yeah, right? So the first sign of God's plan of redemption is in Genesis 3.15. But it takes us all the way uh, to Revelation. Um, and we're going to unpack this this week and next week uh, and show uh, what that redemption looks like and then finally we have new creation or restoration uh, in which God makes all things new which Revelation 21 and 22 uh, in particular uh, point to as it, as it shows us the new heavens and the new earth of course throughout the scriptures the New Testament is going to look back and describe the fall right Romans 3:23 uh, Romans 5 1 through 12 Paul is going to explain uh, sin that came about through Adam and how Jesus is the second Adam. There's all these places where in, in, in the New Testament or even in, in the Gospels in Matthew 23 through 25, what's known as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is going to talk about the new creation, what's to come at the end of time. So obviously it's not like only Revelation 21 to 22 tell us about uh, the future, right? Like books like Ezekiel uh, point forward to um, Old Testament prophecies kind of sometimes mash up the what was fulfilled in Christ and then what would be fulfilled at the end. It kind of presents it as one, and we don't always know, is this a near fulfillment or is this a, a further fulfillment? Um, but just generally speaking, this is the storyline of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Now, redemption, because it takes up, obviously, so much of the Bible, um, we can understand it in, in kind of three ways. Redemption initiated, and this is what God did, uh, in part at Genesis 3.15, but especially starting in Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 3. His plan of redemption is, uh, is initiated, uh, particularly through choosing Abraham uh, and, and ultimately choosing the nation of Israel to bring about blessing to all nations, <clears throat> and that's going to take us all the way to Christ in which redemption is going to be accomplished. And Jesus accomplished redemption on the cross and rose from the dead. And that's a story of the gospel right there uh, with three symbols. Um, but redemption accomplished is Jesus fulfilling all of the promises that were initiated that God makes to, to Israel. He is the fulfillment of those promises and then through faith in Christ the church partakes in those blessings and we continue on this work of redemption through the, the mission of the church so we we carry on the work of <clears throat> of redemption uh, as the church as we uh, make Christ known 
um, and, 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 and share him with others. And so it's a, a picture of, uh, of how God is going to further the work of redemption that was accomplished in Christ, how he's going to carry that news on uh, to make it known so that, just like he said in the beginning, all nations would be blessed through Israel, but the, the promise was that it would ultimately be through the offspring of Abraham, not just Israel as a nation, but one particular person who is going to come, who is Jesus, who the New Testament makes repeatedly clear is the offspring of Abraham and the offspring of David, who's come to accomplish redemption that God promised, and that now we partake in through faith in Christ and we carry on that work of redemption. So the work of redemption is kind of understood uh, and these three and these three aspects uh, that help us to have a, uh, a better and a richer understanding of what Christ um, accomplished as well as what the scriptures uh, are the story that they are telling um, and so the the beginning point uh, of God's plan of redemption uh, and uh, in all of this as I said Genesis 3:15 is our first place and you looked at that last week so I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but instead I want us to go to Genesis 12. So if you go to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, would somebody be willing to read that for us? Okay. would be great. Thanks, Russ. Now the Lord said to Abram, go up from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, as you just look at Genesis 12 and you consider um, what it's saying here, the, the backstory we obviously know pretty well uh, because we just walked through Genesis 1 through 11. But uh, after the fall, uh, the story uh, goes from bad to worse uh, because uh, sin spreads and death reigns and violence uh, fills the earth and pride. Mark's man, and we saw in Genesis 4 and 5 that humanity apart from God is capable of great things, uh, and yet uh, we are prone to ignore and even uh, shake our fist at God and defy him. Lamech in Genesis 4 uh, defies God um, and says, I killed uh, two men, um, and, and if, uh, you, uh, if you seek to harm me, the judgment upon you will be worse than it was upon Canaan. And so there's this kind of defiance against God that we see that's kind of this picture of humanity and it comes to a head and uh, in the flood and God brings about judgment upon the whole world and renews and restarts really with Noah. And then it takes us to Babel in which the people of the land uh, at this time demonstrate the same kind of pride that we saw in the beginning before the flood, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to build a tower that would reach the heavens, resisting God's call to spread out and be fruitful and multiply um, and then we come to Genesis 12 after God spreads out the people it's clear that his plan to reach all these people who are spread out and now speaking different languages is through choosing Abram and so the first thing we see is God's plan of redemption reveals his faithfulness to his promise despite the increasing darkness of sin and so um, the, the covenant that God makes with Noah in some ways, is a um, is a creation-wide covenant. It's basically God saying, I'm not going to judge the world in the same way again. Uh, it's somewhat unique in that um, it's God making this, 
this covenant with all of humanity and with all of creation. Um, but now we come to Abram, who becomes Abraham, Father Abraham, with his sons, and sons, and Father Abraham. And I'm one of them. Um, and so are you, if you trusted in Jesus. So let's all praise the Lord. Um, but God makes a promise and a covenant with Abraham beginning here in Genesis 12. If you flip over to Genesis 15, we see that covenant enacted in a pretty significant way. Basically, God told Abram in, in Genesis 12 that he's going to make him into a great nation. The problem is, to become a great nation, you have to have many children. Um, and though we know the song well, at the time, uh, Abram didn't know the hit song that would be in his name. Uh, he didn't know that he was going to have any children because he didn't have one to begin with. And so uh, he says, God, how can I have a child when I don't, uh, how can I have a nation when I don't have a child? And can I not just take Eleazar of Damascus um, and make him uh, my uh, my heir to be? Um, and so um God says, no, that's not going to be the case. Um, I'm going to bring this about. And he tells them to do this strange thing where he brings all these animals together. Uh, there's a great song uh, that you can listen to by the artist Slugs and Bugs. Uh, it's called Bring Me a Heifer uh, is the name of the song. And it's about Genesis 15 uh, because God says uh, to Abram, somewhat strange, bring me a three-year-old cow, um, a heifer, three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Um, and Abram's like, okay, God, like, are you sure? Like, so he brings these animals uh, to God, and then God says to them, cut them in half. Um, it's just a side note. I mean, this is no small task, right? Like, uh, I, I've, like, filleted a fish before, you know, after catching it. Uh, I've never slaughtered large animals, right? And so cut them in half, he says, um, and then... Uh, and the birds of the prey uh, came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. And then it says this in verse 12. As the sun was setting, deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to him, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens. Notice, notice what he's about to say. This is before it happens. Your offspring are going to be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge that nation they serve, and afterwards they will go out with many possessions but you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried in good old age. And in the fourth generation, they will return here to this land for the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. And then this happened. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. I give this land to your offspring. And he explains from the brook of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Hedomites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, Jebusites. All of this land I'm going to give you. But he, he enacts this covenant. And, and the significance of what happens here is that usually uh, when a covenant was made between two different parties, they enacted that covenant through some type of symbolic act. Um, and the cutting up of the animals and putting part of the animals on this side and part of the animals on this side what would happen is that the two parties would hold hands and they would walk through the divided animals. Um, because what they were saying is, as they covenanted together, what they were saying is, if any of us break this covenant, 
let what happened to these animals happen to us is kind of the picture. Um, and so it's significant because God puts Abram to sleep. He doesn't walk through uh, the animals. It's the firing pot, the symbolism of God's presence and his holiness that goes through uh, the line by itself, demonstrating that God has made an unconditional covenant, a covenant that he will keep uh, with Abram uh, to make him a great nation and to bring about uh, this plan of redemption through them. Even though it includes their exile, it will also bring about their, uh, bring them back into the land that he has promised them uh, to fulfill his promises. And so um, while God's plan of redemption reveals his faithfulness to his promise, it also, um, we see that God's plan of redemption among the nations will be accomplished through one nation. It's through Israel. And we see in the book of Genesis, the story of the reason that from Genesis 12 on, it's really the story of Abraham and a few of his, his children. Uh, it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and then to Joseph. And Joseph actually takes up the most significant portion, really, uh, of the book of Genesis, uh, showing how God's plan of redemption is carried along through uh, Abraham's son uh, and, and ultimately um, leading to Joseph, who will be renamed Israel, meaning one who strives with God. Uh, we see God's plan of redemption comes about in, in this way. So I love the quote, one of the quotes from the book says that God narrows his redemptive focus to one nation, but his ultimate purpose is to bring about redemptive blessing to the whole creation. So God's promise to Abraham is God's answer to sin, which has corrupted the whole creation. God is going to restore his world. And, and that's what we, we see taking place in, in Genesis um, is, is God's plan of redemption focused in on one, one nation, for the sake of all nations. Um, and then even as we saw in the covenant uh, making process in Genesis 15, the third point I want you to see is God's plan of redemption includes the suffering of Israel uh, through exile, through, through their um, enslavement in Egypt, and then their eventual rescue and their formation uh, into a covenant people. Um, and, and so the history of Israel uh, from this point on uh, is, is in many ways uh, going to, to continually refer back to when God made Israel into a people for himself after he redeemed them out of Egypt and gave them the law. We'll come to that in just a minute. Uh, but I want you to go to Exodus 19. I know some of our Ladies are going to be studying Exodus, and we're actually going to be doing a series on the Ten Commandments coming up uh, in the fall. So we'll spend some time doing this. But in Exodus 3, God calls Moses and tells him that he's going to use Moses, and ultimately Moses and Aaron, to deliver Israel from uh, bondage in Egypt. And, and it's amazing. Uh, like I said, Genesis 15 tells us this is what God was going to do. Um, and, uh, and so what we see is in Exodus 19, after uh, Israel has been brought out uh, miraculously from Egypt through the Red Sea, um, now God is meeting with the people at the mount called Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and he makes what's called the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic, because it's through Moses that it's delivered. Um, it's not... It's different than the Abrahamic covenant that it has really nothing to do with Moses' offspring. Um, it has nothing to do that with Moses being the, the line 
through which redemption would come. Um, but it's uh, called the Mosaic Covenant because it comes through uh, Moses to the people of Israel. And it says this in uh, Exodus 19. Actually, could I get somebody to read Exodus 19, 3 through 6? So we have this <clears throat> picture of uh, what, when God delivers them uh, from Egypt, he redeems them. That's where we see the word redemption first used. I'm going to redeem you by my outstretched arm through these mighty works. He says, now listen to Moses and keep my covenant. You will be my possession out of all the people. So there's this choosing of Israel, uh, though the whole earth is the Lord's, he says. And you will be, here's the important language, a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. Uh, so a kingdom of priests. What, what was it, it, the job of a priest um, in terms of in, in Israel? What, what, what did a priest do? Who did the priest represent? Interceded between the people and God. Yeah. So in, in the Old Testament, the priest is the one uh, who goes before God on behalf of the people. And then often speaks the word from God to the people based upon uh, the sacrifices made. And so as it unfolds throughout, um, throughout Scripture, we'll see that it's the priest who makes offering uh, for the sins of the people in the Holy of Holies as God is going to uh, order it and establish it. Here he says that they all will represent God to people. They will be a kingdom of priests. Israel is to be what's called a showcase people and that they show the world who God is by virtue of their life in the world. And they're to be a holy nation. They're to be a set-apart and distinct people. And this has been the call of God's people uh, always. In fact, today we'll look at this in John 17, as Jesus says uh, and prays for uh, his disciples and for us that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart as holy by his word and his word, by the truth and his word uh, is the truth. And so uh, they're to be a distinct people, um, and they are to be a showcase people. And part of how the mission of God worked in the Old Testament uh, is if you think of it this way, um, here's, here's God's people, Israel, um, and, and God intended for people to come to Israel to see Israel's holiness, that they were distinct, that they were set apart, that they were a showcase people to know what it meant to be in relationship with God. And so the mission of God in the Old Testament was a come and see mission. It was a come and, and behold Israel. This is why people were God-fearers and who, uh, who understood, about the people, understood the God of Israel and often feared the God of Israel and wanted to know um, and understand what it meant to be in relationship with this God and to follow him and keep his ways. And so Israel was to be this showcase people, um, this come and see mission that played out. And God's plan of redemption uh, not only took them down into Egypt, which was a miraculous provision initially, because if you remember, Joseph gets sold uh, into Egypt, and then a famine arises in the land, and their brothers, his brothers have to come, and Israel comes, and God has prepared the way, what 
what they meant, his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. I know we've all meant maybe some evil to our siblings, probably not that evil, you know, like where we sold them into bondage, but we've, we've all meant to hurt them a little bit, you know, get them in trouble. Uh, and somehow it worked out for their good, for their good. Well, this was the ultimate story, right? Um, the, this the younger sibling, uh, gets the last laugh, but it's a redemptive last laugh because he saves Israel from famine. And they come into Egypt, but of course God had ordered their steps there, and they're there for 400 years, but God redeems them and ultimately brings them out and makes them a covenant people. And if you go to Exodus 20, it's when when Moses comes down from speaking with God and he gives them these commands. It's This is the covenant uh, that, that God is going to give them, and... And so he lays out the Ten Commandments, which in many ways in Exodus, the Ten Commandments are like the ten first words of the law. They're not everything that the law says, but they sum up uh, the heart of the law. And then after this, it's kind of all the particulars uh, that get played out. Um, and uh, and some of the particulars like are weird to us today, and yet when you dive into them, you see how God intricately cared for, protected uh, his people from... Uh, from common illnesses and, and different things that um, that it's really amazing to, to look at and see. That's not what we're going to spend time to do today. But I want to point this out in, um, uh, in Exodus twenty eighteen. It says, After Moses gave the law, all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains surrounded by smoke. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And they say, You speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded, don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance and Moses approached the total darkness where God was. Moses had been with God and God's presence is being uh, demonstrated and manifested in this significant way um, by the clouds and by the the thunder and the sounds. And and God comes to speak and the people uh, are to hear his word. Uh, and to walk into obedience to it. Um, and, uh, and, and we see later on, Exodus is kind of the first giving of the law. Um, God's going to bring them into the land, but the people uh, don't uh, trust God. They see the people in the land and they uh, shrink back. And so God uh, leaves them to wander in the wilderness for, for 40 years. Uh, but then in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. It's really Moses' Moses giving a sermon reminding the, the generation who were babies when their parents didn't go into the land. He's reminding them of the law before they go into the land. Um, and, and we see this uh, picture in Deuteronomy uh, 26. Deuteronomy 28. After giving the law, Moses says to the people, Now if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow his commands I'm giving you today, that the Lord your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. All the blessings will come and overtake you because you obey the Lord. You will be blessed in the city, blessed in the country. You will be blessed in your land and your land's produce and the offspring of your livestock. All, all these blessings uh, will come upon you. Verse 15, though, if you skip down. But if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. And he lists the, just as there were blessings in the city and the country and the produce and all these things, there will be curses in those places. The Lord will send, verse 20, 
against you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you do until you are destroyed and quickly perish because of the wickedness of your actions and abandoning me. It's a pretty bleak picture. Um, uh, and then go over to Deuteronomy 30. And, and Deuteronomy 29, before this point, God renews the covenant. Uh, so it's this renewal of the Mosaic Covenant that was given in Exodus 19 and 20. He's renewing it because, remember, this is a whole generation that died off in the wilderness, and now this generation is going into the Promised Land, um, and he's renewing the covenant. They're not going to be led by Moses into the Promised Land. They're going to be led by Joshua into the Promised Land. And it says, <clears throat> when the Lord, when all these things, verse thir chapter 30, verse 1, when all these things happen to you, the blessings and the curses I have set before you, and you come to your senses while you are in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, everything I am commanding you today, then I will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God had scattered you. Even your exiles are at the farthest horizon. He will gather and bring you back from there. The Lord your God will bring you into the land of your fathers possess, and you will take possession of it. Um, and he can go down to, he talks about all the blessings going to come. And then verse 10, when you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and statutes that are written in this book of the law, return to him with all your heart and all your soul. He says, I'm putting this before you, verses 11, starting in verse 11, basically saying, choose life, uh, believe God and keep uh, his, his commands. And, um, and he says, uh, in verse 19 of 30, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God. Obey him. Remain faithful to him. For he is your life and he will prolong your days as you live in the land uh, the Lord, the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and so uh, as he renews, um, uh, there's a reference that I'm, trying to find basically what, what sticks out to me is he renews this covenant he tells them that they're not going to keep it and that they're going to be scattered in exile but that God even here in Deuteronomy 30 there's this this hint that God is going to regather them and bring them back um, and, and fulfill his promises to them so the Mosaic covenant is a covenant that is conditioned upon Israel's obedience to it uh, so that they will either be blessed or in their disobedience be cursed. Um, and God's plan of redemption uh, is, is really, as they now move from being in the wilderness to going into the land, there's a period of judges, but ultimately the story of God's redemption in the Old Testament is about Israel, uh, God's people, and God's land under God's king. Uh, so that's, that's point four. God's plan of redemption is carried out through Israel, living in God's land under the rule of God's king in obedience to God's commands. Uh, so this basically takes you through Joshua and Judges, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, um, or First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles. I don't know if you uh, have pieced this together, but it basically retells the story that's in First and Second Kings, um, but it's written after the exile. Um, so it tells the story uh, of Israel's past after the exile. It's just a reminder of what has taken place as opposed to the others, which tell it from the perspective before uh, the exile. And so, um, as I mentioned, Israel is to be a display people, a showcase to the world of how being in covenant with Yahweh, what that looks like, what it looks like to walk in obedience to him, 
Um, and as they do that, they demonstrate what it looks like for God to rule over his people. Um, and, and, and in this, we, we continually see um, as Israel comes into the land, as they establish kings, all, all, of it is, all of it's looking back to whether or not they're walking in obedience to God's command as revealed in the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and, and so God's law is to shape their whole lives, and it brings us uh, to the Davidic Covenant, which is in 2 Samuel 7. So somebody open up the 2 Samuel um, 7, 18. So Exodus 19, Genesis 12, 15. Second Samuel 7. It's interesting, the first king, who was the first king that Israel established over them? Anybody remember his name? Yeah, Saul, right? <clears throat> and I imagine Saul must have looked like Tom Brady. Um, like, he was tall, like, good-looking. Everyone was like, you are, you're the king. Like, you're the man who is to lead us. Like, you just look like you're important and that you should be in charge of something. And so Israel was like, he's our guy. Um, and they go, they go, we want a king who will go before us and fight our battles, uh, take care of business, and, uh, and protect us. Um, and, and so God warns them, though, that in giving them a king, that the king will demand from them what they don't want to give. He will ask of your children to serve, and he will take of your money and your crops and your produce and all these things. Um, and, uh, and he kind of warns them. And, and in, in a way, they're desiring a king was in some way saying, God, you ruling over us isn't good enough. We want something we can see and touch so that we can, and the, the statement, and I think it's in 2 Samuel, um, uh, or maybe it's in before, before this part, 1 Samuel, where they say, in, I think in chapter 8, basically we want a king like all the other nations, um, is this desire. And so they ultimately choose their own king, uh, but it's a king that, uh, that, that in particular isn't, uh, after God's own heart and, and isn't the king that God would desire for them. And so after God uh, brings down Saul from being king, he anoints David as king, and then he makes this covenant with him. Um, and the Lord says to him, um, <clears throat> starting in Second Samuel 7, uh, verse 18, is David's response, but Second Samuel Go to verse 11. This is where I want to start. Verse 11, 2 Samuel, verse 11. The Lord said to David, The Lord himself will make a house for you. And when your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever, and your throne will be established forever. And then David responds and thanks, thanksgiving. Um, and, and we see in the Davidic covenant what I mentioned earlier in terms of how there is this 
dual aspect to the Davidic covenant. Solomon is the king, the offspring of David that follows him. And God blesses Solomon greatly. But you notice how it says, when he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the blows from mortals. So there's the sense of that he's going to be like an earthly king, just like David, who is a man after God's own heart and yet sinned greatly. Um, and that's going to be true of Solomon. Um, and yet there's the sense in which this offspring's throne and kingdom will last forever. And Solomon, we know, died. Um, and so there's the sense in God saying, I'm going to continue uh, your kingdom through your offspring, but there's this also future forward-looking uh, sense in which there's going to be an offspring from David who won't die. The only way you have a kingdom that goes on forever is if you have a successive line of people who reign uh, under uh, your, uh, in your lineage, or there's a king who's established king who never dies and who lives forever, right? And so the, the plan of God was to, through the line of David, bring about a king who would be Jesus, who, uh, who though he would die on the cross, he would be raised from the dead and who will live forever and who will reign forever. Um, and so <clears throat> what, what you see happening in some ways is <clears throat> the, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant come together here. God's plan to bring about blessings to, to all nations through the offspring of Abraham is being narrowed down in that that one who's going to bring blessing to all nations is also going to rule over all nations, going to be king over all people, who will fulfill the law, who will keep the law in perfect obedience. Uh, we don't have time to look at this, but the king was to write their own copy of the law. They were to know it and to obey it. They were to walk in holiness. Now, and you read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, not many of the kings did that. Not many of them walked in obedience to God's commands. In fact, the, the sad story is such and such king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he led the people to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Only a few times do we see that the king did what was right uh, in the eyes of the Lord and, and obeyed him and followed him. Um, and so <clears throat> uh, we, we continually see the importance of the Mosaic Covenant, even, even during the, uh, within the promise of the Davidic Covenant, is that they're to walk in obedience uh, to God's commands. But the story after David and even in David's life uh, is a story of disobedience and unfaithfulness uh, that leads to God's uh, discipline and judgment. Um, and after Solomon, you see the kingdom split in Israel. Um, this is, it gets confusing because um, the southern kingdom is called Israel um, and the northern kingdom is called Judah. And there's two um, kingdoms, or there's two clans of the twelve that become make up Judah, and then ten that make up Israel. Um, and and Israel gets taken uh, after walking in, in disobedience and not heeding the the warnings of God's prophets. They get taken into exile by the Assyrians. The Assyrians are close to overtaking Judah, but God protects them. Um, Judah has some faithful kings in there uh, that that kind of um, lead them to return to the Lord and repent rather than being uh, taken into exile. But eventually they themselves follow the same path as, as Israel and they're taken into exile by the Babylonians who rise to power and defeat the Assyrians. Um, and then they come down and they finish what the Assyrians couldn't finish um, and take Babylon. And some of God's people are left in the land and many though are taken into Babylon, into exile. And this takes us into the uh, uh, the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how they're taken uh, into exile. <clears throat> and the story of the prophets 
is really them coming and reminding the people of their covenant unfaithfulness to the to Mosaic commands and pointing them to the hope of the redemption that's going to come about in the last days through God's Messiah. Um, so they're continually bringing this reminder of covenant unfaithfulness, but holding out this hope of redemption that's to come in the last days. Um, and some of them write before Israel is taken into exile, um, but others write during exile. And then there's a few that write after the exile is over and Israel comes back into the land. Um, and you begin to see them uh, rebuilding uh, the, the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of the wall being rebuilt around Jerusalem, the temple being rebuilt. Uh, all of these things happen as God's people come back into the land. So God's plan of redemption ultimately is going to include their exile as a result of their covenant disobedience, but he holds out promise of a new covenant. And this takes us to Jeremiah 31. If you go to Jeremiah 31, would somebody be willing to read verses 31 through 34? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. <clears throat> Do you notice <clears throat> the distinction that God makes between the new covenant and the old covenant? He says that the covenant that he's going to make with them will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day that I took them out um, by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. This new covenant is not like the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was conditioned upon their, their blessings was conditioned upon their obedience and their, the curses was brought about by their disobedience. What does God say in the new covenant what, that he will do that will, that will be different than the, the new covenant? What, is, what are some of the things that he speaks of? If you just look there, Jeremiah 31, particularly uh, starting in verse uh, 33. Yeah, he's going to be within them and he's going to write uh, the law on their hearts. He'll put my teaching in them and write the law upon their hearts. Ezekiel 36 speaks of the spirit that he's going to give. It's the promise of the spirit coming to dwell in us that he says is going to then enable us to obey God to be confident that we know God, no longer will one teach his neighbor, but each will say, know the Lord, and he's going to bring about the forgiveness of sins. All of this comes as a, as a, as a the work of this new covenant um, that God is going to, to bring about. And so when you come to the New Testament, these covenants are in the backdrop of everything that's taking place. Jesus is demonstrating what perfect obedience to the Mosaic covenant looks like. Jesus clearly teaches that he is from the offspring of Abraham. And 
he is also from the line of David. The gospel writers are going to great lengths to demonstrate. Uh, in fact, um, Matthew begins with a genealogy in such a way to demonstrate that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Luke shows us how it goes from that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, going all the way back to Adam. Um, Mark begins with this uh, statement that this is the, um, <clears throat> the good news of the gospel um, about Jesus Christ, the son of God. Um, and, and it goes into to demonstrating how, how Jesus is, uh, is fulfilling the promise of Abraham and David. And then uh, in Genesis, this gets a little ahead of to where we're going next week. In Genesis 3, uh, we see uh, how Paul demonstrates that, that Jesus is the, the promised offspring uh, of Abraham. If you look in uh, Genesis 3, or excuse me, Galatians 3, Verse 15, he's using this illustration talking about how anyone that uh, hangs on a tree is cursed. Uh, speaking of Christ, how Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Remember the curses from uh, Deuteronomy uh, 28 and 29? Jesus took the curse of the law upon himself on the cross so that we wouldn't be cursed and instead we would be redeemed. And that the purpose of removing the curse of the law, watch this, was... It says um, the, that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles, those who weren't Jewish by birth, by Christ Jesus, so that we would receive the promised spirit who's promised here in the new covenant through faith. And the spirit would write his law upon our hearts and we would be able to obey God. And it goes on to say how um, the, when it talked about Abraham's offspring or seed, it's speaking of Christ, verse 17, my point is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously made with Abraham. The Mosaic law didn't do away with the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, the Mosaic law was temporary because the new covenant was a new covenant, not like the old covenant, the Mosaic law. Uh, so he says it doesn't do away with it. Um, God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Um, and then he goes on to say that, the promise of Abraham comes through Christ to those who believe in him. Um, so the redemption uh, work of God that began in the Old Testament, we see it played out through the, through the covenants that God makes with his people uh, that, that ultimately are going to lead us to Christ. Um, so this is how God uh, initiates redemption. He hasn't forgotten his promises. We get to the Old Testament, into the Old Testament. He will renew Israel and then draw all nations to himself as he promised Abraham. And in the process, the whole creation will be renewed. God's kingdom, David, God's kingdom will be established over the whole earth with this hope the Old Testament ends. Um, and so what becomes clear in, the, in, the, in, in Jesus is that Jesus fulfills all these promises and we partake in these promises by trusting in him. Um, and, and so uh, that leads us to the interlude, which we're going to just cover uh, kind of quickly here. Um, as I mentioned, the interlude is the period of time between the close of the Old Testament, the last Old Testament book being Malachi, um, and the beginning of the New Testament, the writing of the Gospels. Most take the Gospel of Mark to be the first written Gospel uh, with the others uh, following it. <clears throat> but during this period, we call this the interlude, a kingdom story waiting for the ending. This is the intertestamental period. Uh, the authors say it this way, In our journey through the biblical story, we must pause to consider the intertestamental period. 400 years of Israel's history between Malachi and Matthew. During this time, the Jewish people 
strain to reconcile their faith in God's promises of blessing with the ugly experience of life under a succession of increasingly pagan rulers. Um, so the, even though they even come back into the land of Israel, it's under the rule of others, that uh, other nations around them, other groups around them. Um, and, and they have to live with this tension of what God promised and the way their life actually looks. Um, there's a word for us even in that today, right? This is how we live with that tension of the hope that is to come and the reality of what life looks like today. Um, a few things that are important to understand about Israel during this time. As we look back, there are some writings that uh, express... Uh, what was going on during this time. Um, and some of these uh, are writings known as the Apocrypha. Um, their quality and content clearly demonstrate their difference than the rest of Scripture. And so they're not authoritative on par with the rest of Scripture. And yet they often speak to the attitudes, longings, desires of the people of Israel. Sometimes the allegorical content in them, uh, even though it's not speaking of something that true, truly happened, it demonstrates the desires of the people's hearts. Um, and so one of the, some of the things that we see uh, are the defining beliefs of the Jews during the intertestinal period. Um, there are five in particular that the authors point out. Uh, one is monotheism, belief in one God, the creator of the world, the ruler of history. That was the defining belief of Israel. Election, that God had chosen for a special purpose as people Israel uh, to restore God's purposes in creation and bring blessing to all nations. Um, there is there is a sense even in the Old Testament we see this in the book of Jonah where there's kind of a uh, nationalism that uh, internal like uh, looking at God's promises as only for us and and not wanting to extend them to others um, uh, and so we we see that and you see some of that even during the intertestinal period but there's this belief that God has chosen Israel for a purpose uh, and that purpose is ultimately defined by the Abrahamic covenant the the importance of the Torah. Uh, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of the book of Moses, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then particularly the importance of obedience to the law. It's interesting as Israel, after they go into exile and come out of exile during the intertestinal period, Israel is very zealous against idolatry. And it makes sense because that's what got them in exile in the first place. They, they learned in that process that only God is to be worshipped. They're very serious about obedience uh, to God. The land of Israel and the temple in particular, it's only in the land and through worship at the temple that Israel could experience uh, personal communication with God and enjoy his presence among them. So the temple is, is really important. And this is why when Jesus says, I'm going to tear down this temple and in three days rebuild it, the people pick up stones to, to stone him because they say, you're blaspheming God. No one can speak against the temple like that. Um, and obviously the writers of the gospel tell us Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his own body as himself as the true temple. Um, but then even in the midst of this, there's this hope of a future redemptive act of God, that God's future redemptive uh, work is going to come about in and through Israel. And it's not like bursting from the seams uh, during this period of time, but it's present uh, that there is a hope for a Messiah that a Messiah is going to come, one who's going to come and, and bring about this redemptive work. Um, and so um, those are the defining beliefs. But during this time, you have a succession of um, pagan rulers and kingdoms over Israel. And you can look this stuff up for history as it goes from the Babylonians 
ruling over them to the Greeks coming. They defeat the Babylonians, and the Greeks um, are in charge. And then after Alexander dies, the kingdom, um, the Greek kingdom kind of splits up into smaller uh, smaller kingdoms and divided amongst his generals, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, um, uh, are two of those that vie for Judea, uh, where Israel is. Uh, during the time of the Seleucids, uh, there's what's called the Maccabean Revolt, um, where there's a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes who basically sacrifices a pig in the temple um, and uh, just obviously desecrating uh, the temple and defying and, uh, you know, basically blaspheming God. Um, and uh, the Maccabean family lead this revolt. Um, Judas Maccabeus rises up and they defeat the Seleucids and kind of have a period in which Israel is in charge again uh, under a Jewish ruler. Um, it's kind of like the Exodus during this point. It becomes for the Jews a defining moment as the authors in their history. God had acted to deliver his people, restore his temple, vindicate his law. And since God had visited his people once in this dramatic way, surely he would do it again. Um, and so uh, there's this kind of longing for that type of, um, when, when people hear Jesus and the Messiah has come, they're, they're thinking Judas, the Maccabees. They're thinking the Maccabean revolt. Maybe we can do it again. We did it against the Seleucids. Maybe we can do it to the Romans. That's the picture. Um, and Jesus says, I've not come to defeat the Romans. I've come to, um, I'm going to conquer through lying, laying down my life. I'm going to conquer through suffering. Um, <clears throat> And then another kind of feature during this time are the, the groups within Israel uh, that provide a backdrop for understanding the Gospels. Uh, the first is the Pharisees. These were the, uh, the purists. They were obedient to the law. Um, they exercised great influence in Israel during this time. They're also known, and this kind of sets up uh, a lot of their conflict with Jesus, and um, they're known for like, Here's what the law says. And out of desire to obey the law, they, they say, not only can you not do this, but you can't do this. They set up a fence around the law. That way, if you break their rule, the fence, at least you haven't broken the law yet. You know, um, it's like we, we I do this with my kids sometimes. And like if I don't want them to go to the road, I'm like, you can't go past the sidewalk. Um, because if they go past the sidewalk, then there's still a little bit of space before they get to the road, right? Uh, it's like you, you're trying to protect them from it. And so often good desires, uh, which led to a kind of pride and legalism uh, that, would, uh, that would define them. The author says the Pharisees were successful because they gave voice to some of the deepest desires of the people. Their longing for liberation, their loyalty to Torah, and their long-held hope for a renewed kingdom in which God himself would reign. The Pharisees believed in a future resurrection. Um, their counterparts were called the Sadducees. They were kind of the, they were the bureaucracy uh, of Israel. They were kind of the, the leaders, the movers and shakers who had recognition with Rome. They were official teachers of the law, um, kind of like a mainline Jewish religion. And they didn't believe in a future resurrection. Um, and that's why they're Sadducees. You just always, always remember that's um, the Sadducees. You, you see this when, uh, Paul um, is imprisoned and he's speaking before some Jews and he knows that some of them are Pharisees. 
he makes reference to the future. He, there's Jew, there are Pharisees and scribes. He makes reference to the future resurrection because it creates a split between the Pharisees and the scribes. It's in the book of Acts. Um, we also see a group called the Essenes who withdrew from society and pagan influences. So they boycotted Disney and all the other uh, things, uh, believing themselves to be the true Israel. Um, they, they were separatists. They separated themselves. Um, and, and the Essenes are believed to be what gives us the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, and that period of the Dead Sea uh, community uh, in which they had a teacher of righteousness and this whole kind of community that was uh, defined by the law and, and, and defined uh, by their uh, kind of belief in being the true Israel, very eschatological, believing the end times were happening now and they, they were at the center of God's redemptive plan. Um, and very fortunate that they've preserved much of uh, the access that we have to many manuscripts today from the Old Testament. Uh, and even in their, in their writings about the Old Testament, we can have confidence about what the Old Testament says because they're writing about it from, from their vantage point. Then there are the Zealots. Um, these, these guys became you know, um, zealous for, uh, for Israel. There's kind of a subculture within the nation of Israel, a small group, but they... They were kind of by any means necessary. They were going to take back Israel for God, um, and they resisted the compromise of the pagan culture and, and embraced violence uh, to achieve their ends and were even willing to be martyred. Um, it's believed that there were perhaps even some zealots among uh, Jesus's early followers, and, and you kind of see this even, even in Peter's tendency to take the sword and cut off the Romans' uh, guard's ear, this kind of sense of uh, of, of defying uh, the, the pagan powers and taking back Israel for God. And then there were the common people. Most people weren't in any of those categories. And they were just regular old people doing, uh, doing their thing, going about their life, hoping that all this talk about a Messiah was really true and that God was going to come and do something about the situation that they were in. And the authors closed, in this context, a fervent expectation, a young man from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, would announce that the kingdom of God had arrived, repent, and believe the gospel. Uh, this was the anticipation uh, that defined this time when Jesus uh, arose. And it's often against uh, the backdrop of the intertestinal period that we understand many of the things in the gospel. So, it's been. Um, would, would the Jewish leaders that time have interpreted Isaiah 52 to 53 differently than how as Christians today would interpret it because yep. there it talks about um, the type of salvation that would come and it was in the form of a suffering servant but yep. I think like what you just talked about today it's such a big disconnect from what they think from yeah. the form of the Messiah that they think should that yeah. they should expect yeah absolutely yeah they're in the in the intertestinal period and um, leading up to, to this time there wasn't a, a overwhelmingly clear-cut belief that the suffering servant was the Messiah who was going to suffer, um, but that that most the most predominant view is that the servant was Israel, um, that it was a represented like it was a collective uh, servant. The, the the idea of a servant was collective, um, as opposed to an individual who was representative. Um, and so in all of the ser servant passages, you have this question as to whether it's talking about Israel as my servant 
or is it talking about this individual uh, that's going to be representative of Israel? And so the predominant view was that Isaiah 52 and 53 uh, are talking about Israel as the servant uh, who's going to suffer and, and, um, and how God's plan is going to bring about this redemption through them. Uh, but in, I, don't, I don't think that it was exclusively viewed that way. And that there was this sense, um, even you see it in Jesus as he begins to talk, uh, as he points out to, to the people when he, like he talks about David saying, uh, my Lord, uh, you know, in, in Psalm uh, 103, I think it is, um, maybe Psalm 101. Uh, he's like, he's, he's pointing these things out going, how, how could it be then that David calls him my, like, who are, who's the Lord in the passage, you know, like, there's the sense that there's somebody else that the passage is talking about, um, that I think some have this sense that there is this mystery uh, of what God was going to do and how it was going to come about. Um, and, and so it, there, the picture of we see in a glass dimly lit in the Old Testament, what comes into clearer view uh, in the New Testament, I think is certainly true. Um, and that there was this sense that Jesus was doing something that the people didn't expect as well as at the time he didn't expect because some of the things he did people thought were going to come about at the end of time um, and he did it in the middle of time in his first coming um, and some of the things that they were wanting him to do like defeat all of their enemies and establish his kingdom on earth he didn't do in his first coming but he's going to do in his second coming so that's the other thing about all of those promises is understanding the, the first the two comings of Christ and that they did what Jesus came to do. They didn't expect because they were thinking that he was going to do in his first coming what he tells us he's going to do in his second coming. Um, and so, so yes, that that's beyond what you asked in the sense of how they understood that. But I think that's an important part uh, of of all of that. Would you say that's the same for Jew, a lot of Jews today? I know there's not exclusive. Sure. But this is the yeah. Um, yeah. I just wonder if they would hold to these same five defining beliefs from the interior. Judaism today is defined into different like groups in that there's a um, I there's like a kind of a cultural you know Jew by name only kind of view that uh, it's defined by some of the same cultural customs but not the same religious belief. Um, there's also some Jews today that have, uh, a little softer stance, you know, on the importance of obedience to the law and how all of that gets played out. But then you still have very, um, very traditional uh, Jews who view these beliefs still as, um, you know, as primary. The Hasidic Jews, um, you know, are known for being very uh, orthodox in the sense of their uh, practice and their uh, belief uh, in regards to there being one God. Uh, so it is... There are, I've, I have to go look this. I think there are four unique uh, kind of types of Jews today um, that I, I'm going to get wrong if I try to say them, but uh, it's a mixture, you know, of, and it's not unlike some Christian denominations, which are Christian only in name, you know, and basically are universalist, you know, and what they teach um, as it relates to salvation. That There are some Jews that are like that today, but they have the cultural customs, um, and then there's that on that extreme that's basically only by name and then, you know, keeping with what we see here, these five core beliefs, as well as obedience to the to the scriptures. And so 
there's a range today in that regard. There is a book, uh, Jamie, that I'll, uh, if I think about it, I'll point you to that um, is really uh, interesting as it relates to the messianic expectations uh, of the uh, intertestinal period. Any, any other thoughts or questions? I feel like I've talked a lot, but we covered the whole Old Testament. So um, uh, I hope this is helpful and would love to have further conversation uh, about it. And uh, we'll, we'll take some time to, to dig into this uh, a little bit next week before we start. So let me close this out in prayer.